All right, so Romans 8, this series, uh, we got another week after this, um, hope in a, in a broken world. We saw the foundation of that hope in week one, verse one, chapter eight, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In, in other words, if you've given your faith, your trust over to Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, then you have no fear of being condemned for eternity, but you've also been given life now. You have a chance to live life more fully and alive now. And that's part of what we've been talking about. And then Paul goes on in Romans 8 and he says that, he's, that the Lord is building a family, that, that he's adopting sons and daughters, that he wants to lavish his riches of inheritance and his kingdom on us. And so if you've, if you've walked into faith with Jesus, you're part of that family. Jesus is not just our savior. We read he's also our older brother. He's leading us in the way of the kingdom. And then even with that hope in view, we start reading about all of the, the, the struggles, the groans, the agony in which we live. Like we just prayed for Hurricane Ike. I mean, if you, or Hurricane Ian, I mean, just the devastation that you can't even tell what was there before. I mean, it, it just takes your breath away to think. And what, and what Paul says about instances like this is that it's creation groaning, that even nature itself is longing for redemption. But we move beyond creation, beyond nature, and we move to our own bodies, and we know that our bodies are under this curse of sin and this curse of death. And so we think of diseases like MS or ALS or lymphoma and the list goes on. And even if we're not decimated by a disease, then our bodies still decay. They still just get old. And we can push against that and we try, but, but we get old. Gravity has its way with us at, at some point or another. Our wrinkles get wrinkles. Amen? Some of you are like, yep, saw a new one today. It's just, it just is what it is. And yet... What do we do in America? We, we launched this mass marketing campaign that tells you you can reverse the aging process. And we do it in America more than anywhere. This is a graph that represents the billions of dollars spent um, on beauty products by country, okay? And there, America is winning. Y'all, that's all we do, we just win. $89.7 billion. Um, I love that like the United Kingdom is like, you know what, let's just be in the middle. Like, they're just content. They're like, teeth, whatever. You know, like, let's just do your thing. We're fine. Um, kudos to you, England. But um, so for us, but think about this, 42% of what we spend in America, 42% of that, which totals $37 billion, is spent on skincare. So like, I want to look as smooth as the next guy, right? Like, I want my skin to glisten and glow, but $37 billion on that. It's crazy how much we'll spend on that. And we can, we can poke fun and it's okay to have fun. And listen, you take care of yourself, do your thing, all right? Um, but it's fun to think about that and poke fun. But we also know that there's not a medical procedure, there, there's not a mushroom supplement or a vitamin C cream on this planet that is gonna keep you eventually from growing old, looking old and dying. That's what's happening. That's where it's headed. And yet, even what we experience when we spend all the money on these things, it's an echo of what Paul says is our, our deepest longing, that our bodies long for the day of redemption. That's what the world and our bodies cry out for. And so here we are in the meantime. In the meantime, 
can be a really mean time. It can be a hard time. To the point that Paul says in verse 26 uh, of Romans 8, we don't even know what to pray for. Like the struggles can be so hard and the disappointments so deep and the difficulties can last so long, we don't even know what it is we should be praying for. We've, we've used all the words. Some of you have been there. You remember, some of you, 1962 and the Cuban Missile Crisis, you remember the, the duck and cover drills with the Cold War. You didn't know what to pray. You didn't know what to do in those times. Some of you sent loved ones off to Afghanistan or Iraq not knowing if you'd see them again. And you're at a loss for words. You've been in a room where a doctor has used the word inoperable or you've been with the, the ultrasound technician who couldn't find a heartbeat. Paul says, we, we don't even know what to pray. This life is brutal. And then in verse 28, where we're starting this morning, he has the audacity to say what he does. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Like after everything he's just said, he's gonna say the one thing that we can be sure of, and we know, like we don't even know what to pray for. All of the destruction, all of the devastation in the world, in our bodies that are crying out, like is Paul not reading the room? Well, is he, is he emotionally detached? Like, how are we supposed to know this? Who's good is this? I've asked that question. Exactly who's good are we talking about? And how can we trust that what Paul is saying of God is true? We've had those doubts. We've had those thoughts. And so we're gonna walk through these verses and discover the richness of what Paul says. But I wanna start with a little bit of a caution. Because what happens with these verses, verses 28 and then verses 29 and 30, is they get separated from one another. And when that happens, it gets a little wonky. Things get a little bit off. So for instance, with verse 28, this can easily become the, I don't know what to say, so I'll say this verse. So we, we get in these moments of life where something's happened and we don't know what to say and we feel like we gotta say something. So we're like, yeah, you know, Romans 8, 28, God's working together for good. And when we do that, what we mean is something like this. These are a couple of examples. Hey, you didn't get that job, but remember God's working for the good. So that just means there's a better job around the corner. Something like that. Or if you tried to buy a house in Johnson City in the last two years and you didn't get it, it was probably because of somebody else in this room who moved here from California. Let's just be honest. Hey, we're glad you're here, right? Glad you're here. Jacked up our housing market, glad you're here. But we, but we would say, you know, maybe, maybe that's just not the house God has for you. There's a perfect house. And maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe not. Maybe it really is just a lousy market. And it's just hard. And, and so we can use it that way. And we don't mean any harm by it. But I think as you'll see, that's not exactly what Paul is intending in this verse. The same thing with very tragic situations where it's death or disease. Again, we don't mean harm by offering this as a word of encouragement. But it's not the fullness of what Paul is saying. And then verses 29 through 30, this is, this is where really um, loaded terms can be used as ammunition 
Because in, in verses 29 and 30, you get verses like foreknew and predestined and called. And since the early 400s AD, there have been debates and arguments over predestination and free will. And then with the advent of the Protestant Reformation, you got Calvinism, Arminianism, just same, same debate, different, different words. And so these verses get used, they get co-opted into sort of tribal battles over how God saves. And so I can assure you, we will not settle that debate today of how, if you're like, oh, he's gonna, nope, not gonna settle the debate. It's gonna rage on until Jesus comes back. It will. But I can also assure you that we are all on the same team, that we can unite around the main thing, which is that God does save and we're glad he saves and we want more and more people to experience the salvation that he offers. Amen? That's what we can unite around. And so we'll talk about that. But to experience the richness of these verses, they are meant to be kept together. So we're gonna start verse 28 and we're gonna see how 29 and 30 fit together, how we don't separate them. So verse 28, first thing, and we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. The very first thing we see is that this is a promise of God. This is a promise of God. This is not a principle to apply to your life. We preach those sometimes, principles from scripture. This is a promise. This is a truth to believe, a truth to live, that it becomes a part of you so that no matter what happens in your life, good or bad, you fully trust that God is doing something in and through that that is for your good. It's a promise, not a principle. It's been said though that this is the hardest promise in all of scripture to believe. And I I tend to believe that. We've all had experiences in our lives that make this the hardest promise to believe because of everything we've already talked about. And yet there's a power here that God works and is working for the good. It's, it's present and active, intense. He's always working out stuff for our good. The word works is the word synergeo from which we get synergy or synergistic um, in our English language. So you've got constituent parts, individual parts of something that work together in collaboration to create something better or greater than if they'd stayed apart. Okay, that's, that's what synergy is. Um, some of you illustrated this this morning at breakfast when you sprinkled that little white substance on your eggs or grits or whatever you may have put salt on. That's synergy. Because sodium and chloride in their pure elemental forms are dangerous, deadly even, volatile. But if you get them together in the right combination, they synergistically work together to produce salt. And some of you are like, yes and amen. That's what it is. That's the principle of synergy. And so God is working all things together in a, in a way like that. Not most things, not some things, but literally all things. That's the hard part to believe. All, like all things. So this is a promise of God, but it comes with a condition. This is a promise of God for the people of God. It's for the people of God. Paul says in verse 28, this is for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So we can go ahead and deal with that word called because that's what we get hung up on. Well, how do I know if I'm called? How do I know if I answered the call? Does God call all? Does he just call some? But the word called just goes back to those who love him. So if you love God, you're called. If you've accepted faith, if you put your faith in Jesus, accepted the free gift of salvation available through him, you're called. 
you love God. And if you haven't, if you haven't done that, you're actively being called. You can answer that call to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And for those who do, Paul is saying God promises to bring all things in your life together in such a way, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in such a way that it will be better for it. And the most delicious illustration I know of this is chocolate delight. I have friends who have had it. They can testify. So like many desserts, this is chocolate delight. And the picture doesn't do it justice, so don't get judgy, all right? Um, you, you gotta bake the bottom layer. And I wrote down the instructions. Uh, so you got flour, chopped pecans, margarine. You bake that together at 350 for 20 minutes. You set that to the side. You gotta let it cool off before you start topping it. Then you get cream cheese, confectioner's sugar, and Cool Whip. You mix that around and you put it on the layer, the next layer. Then you get instant pudding, chocolate pudding. You mix it with milk. You gotta use milk, don't use water. Don't get, don't get cheap. Uh, and you put that on top of the cream cheese layer. And then you top everything off with Cool Whip. And again, not the time to be stingy. You use the whole bucket. Like just throw your hand in there and just slather it. And then you top it with some pecans to make yourself feel good. You put it in the fridge for a couple hours. You pull it out. You say, Lord, forgive me for what I'm about to do, and you go. It is amazing. It is amazing. But if you were to come to my house and I said, hey, I've got chocolate delight, and you were like, awesome, I remember that from the sermon because I remember everything from every sermon ever. I wouldn't go, all right, here, here's chocolate delight. All you got, you get a pick, pick from a, you can have a stick of margarine. You want a cup of sugar? You got that? Hey, you should probably, you probably would really like this box of uh, pudding mix. FYI, get some water, it gets a little chalky. Like I wouldn't give you those, indigre- those ingredients individually because you don't get the goodness of chocolate delight without them being mixed together. It has to be synergy working together. But if you notice, there's something else that has to happen with, with that dessert and with a lot of the dishes that we enjoy. You don't get the goodness of those dishes without the heat of the oven, without being put to the fire. So much of the good that God works in our lives is a result of our lives being put to the fire. That's why he says in Romans 5, we glory in our sufferings because there's something God does in us and to us when we suffer that will not happen in times of ease. And I hate that truth and, and, I, and I will give you four reasons why I don't want that to be true. Their names are Ben, Nora Jane, Caroline, and Addie. My kids. I, I don't want my kids to know the weight of sin and suffering and brokenness in this world. I don't want them to feel that. And, and so as an earthly father, if you were to tell me, hey, you have the power to remove all of those things from their lives, I'm gonna be tempted to do it because I love them more than life itself and I don't want them to feel those things. I don't want them to go through those experiences and I can't see how those fires in my kids' lives are gonna be used. Like we can at least look back on life and see how God's done some things, but we don't wanna imagine how God's gonna use these things in our kids' lives. And yet God, being the perfect heavenly father he is, who stands in tomorrow as well as today, knows exactly where it's leading. He knows exactly how it's gonna be used. And so we only see the pieces 
of the puzzle, but he sees the whole picture in all of its beauty and glory. And this speaks to one of the primary reasons that people will say this, you know, I, I can't believe in God because if, if God really were, if he exists, if he really is good, he wouldn't allow all these bad things to happen. I get it. But doesn't it stand to reason that God would be less loving if he knew we would suffer more for not having suffered at all? If he knew that all of those evil things, all of the wicked things, all of the hardships are going to be worked together for our good and ultimately for his glory, wouldn't he be less God to not let us go through them? So this is the great tension that we face emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally with this promise is that all we see is the what. All we see is the circumstance, the situation, the hardship, the disappointment, the devastation, the loss, the discouragement. That's all we see is the what. And we don't know why. And we don't know how it's supposed to work together, how it's going to work together, let alone when. But Paul tells us through this promise, we know who. We know who is the one working. We know the one who's holding the scalpel, who is cutting in order to heal. We, we know this sovereign chef who is mixing all of these ingredients together in such a way to fashion them in such a way that it is going to be better for us that we had all of these experiences. The very things that we would choose to get rid of in our lives or that we would call unnecessary or maybe even evil, God says, no, I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna work with that. I'm gonna make something even better because of it. And this is where we read on and we bring verses 29 and 30 into the mix so we taste fully what God is doing. Paul says, God is doing good and what is good, it has to be on his terms. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed to the image, Christ conformity. That is the good. That is what is promised, that you would look more and more and more like Jesus until the day where you are fully and finally healed and restored to resemble Jesus, which is what you were created to look like. It's what we're created to be. And that's what we're becoming. God says that they would be conformed to the image of his son. Imagine for a moment, I mean, just imagine what it would look like to live your life like Jesus. To love like Jesus, to show mercy like Jesus, to be present to people the way that Jesus is present to people, to exercise the compassion of Jesus. How would that have changed the way that 2020 looked if we had just done that? How would that change some of our marriages, your friendships, the way that you parent, the way that you are a child towards your parents? I mean, this is everything, right? This is everything that we say that we want is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And it's tempting to think it's all later, it's all heaven. 
But even now, God is working something in us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, even now we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Other translations to say one degree of glory to another. So that right now, we can become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. That is our sanctification. Which means we'd better know what the life of Jesus looks like. We better know who Jesus is. We, we saturate ourselves in the gospels. In our evangelical world, we tend to get a little fixated on Paul. I know this feels weird because we're in Romans, but go with me. But to know the life of Jesus what difference did it make the way that he approached people, the way that he dealt with situations and hardships and disappointments and disagreements? What about when people disagreed with him? How did that go? To know the way of Jesus. So Jesus leads the way for us, not just in his death, but in his life. So Christ's conformity, that is the good. Jesus's life is our guide. So in verse 28, the all things are leading to this one thing in verse 29, being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what we are promised. And then the language of verse 29, when you bring that in, tells us how ironclad this is. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, that's where this comes in, to be conformed to the image of his son. So that you, you've got the word foreknew, which means God looks and knows before, and he looks down the corridor of time and knows who is going to love him. He knows who is going to respond in faith to the free offer of grace. And those who he knows, he says, I am giving you this promise. I predestine that you are gonna be conformed to the image of his son. I will chase you down. I'll come after you when you go astray. I will be faithful when you are faithless. That's the promise of God. So disciples are supposed to imitate their rabbis. That's why he says, I'm gonna conform you to the image of Jesus. See, that's, he is our rabbi. He's our savior, he's our older brother, he's a rabbi, so much imagery. But we know that that's a messy road, it's a long road. I love that Tony Evans, Pastor Tony Evans says, God can take the good and bad and bitter and create a masterpiece called your destiny. And folks, I don't care what you're doing with the rest of your life, your destiny, if you are a follower of Jesus, is to look like Jesus, is to live like Jesus, to love like Jesus. That is your destiny. That's what's available to everyone, Christ in you. And it gets better as Paul goes on in verse 30. He kind of works his way backwards here. He says, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. All of these are past tense verbs, which will be really important when we get to the end. You are predestined to be conformed to Christ's likeness. Why? Because you were called. Why? Because you were justified. We talked about this week one, that in Jesus's death on the cross, you received the righteousness of Jesus and he received your unrighteousness. This is what the Protestant reformer Martin Luther would call the great exchange. Your unrighteousness for Jesus's righteousness. We come out ahead on that one. That is your justification when you confess your faith in Jesus. And so with all of these weighty theological terms kind of fresh on the mind, I wanna ping back to that debate that, that can so easily divide the body of Christ over how God saves. 
I want to spend just a moment here because this is, again, not the point, but I, I think it's fair and for you to understand where I am. And so the primary question that drives the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism is who can be justified? Who can be saved? Is it some or is it all? Who is it available to? And I understand there are some texts that can muddy the waters a bit. I get it. I've been through it. But in such a case, there's a biblical rule of interpretation that I would encourage you to follow. That you would use the clear to interpret and read the unclear. That you would ask, hey, are there texts, are there verses, are there passages that are really straightforward? And if so, can I use those to help read and understand and interpret other passages? That may seem to be as, not as clear. So when it comes to this question, I'm thankful for what Paul himself says elsewhere. So I just, just went with Paul. This is Romans 3.24. All are justified freely by his grace. So all is all, and it can be free. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Say it like you mean it. Saved. All right, we're gonna work on this. Come on. Here we go. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants who? All people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. One more. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to who? Okay, all people. Okay, so those are clear, straightforward, no question. You cannot exegetically undo all. You can't do it. Now, like I said, this does not have to divide the body of Christ. It should not divide the body of Christ. And if it's been a source of division for any of us, we should repent and confess that. But I do believe that salvation is freely offered to all. And that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. And that this promise that we're talking about will be yours. And if you've not done that, you can do that today. So those are those clear interpretive lenses. And then for all who've been, have called on the name of Jesus, how this passage ends, this is what should blow our minds. Again, past tense. Those he justified, he also what? Glorified. You're getting the hang of it. Feels good, doesn't it? Glorified. A future promise, a future reality in the past tense. Glorification is that moment, that existence, that experience when you are fully and finally restored, redeemed to bear the image that you were meant to bear of Jesus. And Paul says, this is so ironclad. God's willing to use past tense language as if it's a loving father looking at his children saying, I will see you through. I've got you. You will mess it up. I've got you. That's the promise. And I know that promise doesn't remove all the questions. It does not take away the hardship. It does not undo all of the uncertainty in our lives. But I think the word for us this morning is, don't let what is uncertain overshadow who is certain. Do not let what is uncertain overshadow who is certain. Don't give power over to the unknown. And what is known is that God is faithful. In both Isaiah and Revelation, the voice of God declares this, behold, I am making all things new. 
So Romans 8, 28, God is working all things together for the good. Why? Because behold, I'm making all things new. I'm doing something with it. You don't have any idea what it's going to look like, but I promise you it's gonna be better than you could imagine. And people can criticize us as Christians and say, that's just a crutch that you're leaning on. I would say, no, that is a stretcher and you can carry me out on it. That is where we live. That God's doing something that we can't even fathom in the midst of our brokenness. I'm making all things new. In C.S. Lewis's fictional book on heaven and hell, The Great Divorce, um, it's a remarkable book. Uh, he, he gives this scene where somebody's entering into eternity and there's a guide who's walking this, this man through it. And he says this, he says, that is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, so suffering in this life, no future bliss can make up for it. In other words, we have these experiences in life and we imagine we're like, okay, God's working for good. There's no possible way there's this one-to-one correspondence of how he can make this good or right by me. He says, no, this is the misunderstanding. No future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, heaven, glory once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. That when we are face to face with Jesus, with our savior, with our brother, even the agony of our lives will somehow be rolled up, worked together, needed, woven, whatever you wanna use to be glorious. There is not a hope in this life like that. And so in the meantime, when it comes to the hard things that we face in life, I don't know why, And let's just be honest, knowing why wouldn't really matter because the pain would still be there. The hurt would still be there. The loss would still be there. Knowing why is not gonna help it. So I don't know why, and I don't know how, and I don't know when, but I know who. I know that he who promises is faithful. That the same God who looked down the corridor of time and said, my son is going to enter that place that he will die, that he will rise again, is bringing life into us even now. And it matters now. It's why, and I, I love her story, Joni Erickson Tata. That Joni Erickson, a teenager at the age of 17, could dive into the Chesapeake Bay, break her neck, become a quadriplegic, and then launch an international ministry that delivers wheelchairs to people who can't afford them in no way and gives them dignity and life that they would not know otherwise, and has done so much more than that. If you know her story, that's a fraction of it. For more than 50 years, 55 years plus now, she has just been faithful to declare the truths of Romans 8 that our hope is not in this world. And also she did that after breast cancer and chemotherapy. Like just, I mean, seriously, you wanna talk about agony but knowing that it will be rolled up into glory in God's time and in God's way. And so in all of this, it's to say nothing is wasted. Absolutely nothing is wasted. Nothing is an afterthought when it comes to the Lord and the way that he works. It's in the same way that in the book of Genesis when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and then he spends time in prison before he becomes second in command over all of Egypt. 
Remember what he says? He says to his brothers when he faces them later, what you intended for me as evil, what you intended to me as harm, God meant for good. God meant it for good. I couldn't see it. I didn't know why. I didn't know how. I didn't know when, but I know who. God meant it for good. It meant that, and it was the same thing when Jesus went to the cross and that God could use the greatest evil ever committed on this earth to produce the greatest good that we will ever know, the glory of the gospel. Those Roman soldiers and those, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious people, they didn't know that they were playing part of God's working together for the good. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And we know that it's trustworthy because as we sang, and my goodness, we sang it, we are not a good Friday religion. We don't stop with Friday. We know that Sunday is coming. We are in Easter faith. We know that there came the day when the tomb could not hold Jesus, that he rose to glory. And what does Paul say of us with him? He says, God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Again, future glory in the past tense. And because of that, you can leave here saying, these words. I live beyond harm in God's hands. There is nothing that can happen to me that will not turn out to my good. I live beyond harm in God's hands. Nothing can happen that will not turn out for my good. Not the affair that you or your spouse had, not the miscarriage, not the betrayal, not the addiction, not the disease, not the job that you absolutely despise. Nothing is beyond use in God's hands. And for those who are called according to his purpose, those who love God, you can say, I live beyond harm in God's hands. That is the promise. So we're gonna, we're gonna pray, we're gonna sing a song about God's sovereign hands. And as we do, here's what I'd ask you. Is there anywhere in your life, is there anywhere in your life, any space in your life, that you're allowing what is uncertain to overshadow who is certain. Disappointments, fears, whatever it may be. If so, to lay it before him. He already knows, but put it before him. But then if you could say, man, I, I cannot claim this promise, that you would become one of the called, that you would say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. Lord Jesus, I believe that you were raised from the dead and that you would enter into that promise today. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we cannot help but respond in our hearts and now we respond with our prayers, with our voices, to your goodness, to your design, Lord, knowing that you do things that we cannot possibly fathom. To believe with our full hearts that you are taking all things and working them for our good, which ultimately will be our glory in Jesus Christ. For the longing in our souls, Lord, I pray this morning for a respite 
Holy Spirit. May these lyrics of this next song, may they wash over us, encourage us, lift our heads and feel the gaze of our Heavenly Father looking on us with love and adoration and care. Lord, we declare right now in faith, you are making all things new, including ourselves. And we give thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.